Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Have you heard the news? The Indo Daily is up for a listener's choice award. Head over to the irishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote. You're listening to the best of the Indo Daily, your chance to catch up on the most popular episodes of the year so far. While the robbery is still taking place, the robbers are communicating by phone. And so there is a message which gets out that things are going well. And at this point, Karen McMullen is moved a second time. She's taken to Drumkira Forest. It's isolated, it's dark, it's very cold. This is the middle of winter, just before Christmas. And for hours, Karen McMullen has been convinced that her death is looming. She said in court that I was waiting for the bullet in the back of my head. I asked them to give my body back to my family. And actually, at this point, they don't kill her. They free her, but she's in the middle of a freezing forest. She is disoriented. She's incredibly distressed. And she eventually finds a house, an isolated house. She raises the alarm there. There is a 999 call to the police. They, by this stage, had had a second call from Chris Ward's house. He had been told by the people who captured him that once he got home, he was to ring and raise the alarm at 11pm. There is evident shock from the call handler as he says to her, I think we've just stolen about £30 million from the Northern Bank. On the 28th of December 2004, one of the largest robberies in history took place during rush hour in Belfast. The gang made off with over £26 million sterling without raising the suspicions of the security on duty. But how did the criminals achieve such a feat and why after 18 years has nobody been convicted of the robbery? I'm Fionn Sheen, and today on the Indo Daily, as part of our Unsolved series, we take a look at the infamous Northern Bank robbery. It's not just a story about an awful lot of money being stolen and about high politics. It's a story about human beings. Joining me to take us through the events of that day and to examine the repercussions of the heist is Northern Ireland editor of the Belfast Telegraph and Sunday Independent, Sam McBride. Sam McBride, what was Northern Ireland like in 2004? 
Well, it was far more peaceful than it had been during the 30 years of the Troubles, but it had got to a position of political stalemate. The hope that had been there in 1998 at the, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement um, really had maybe not totally evaporated by this stage, but there wasn't very much of it left. There was a sense that there was peace to a certain extent, although there were still people um, in much smaller numbers being killed or being attacked in other ways by people who were paramilitaries. But the sort of stability, the, the sort of prosperity that Northern Ireland had been promised, had hoped for, had expected in 1998, it seemed pretty far off by this point. And Sam, the political landscape then at, at the time, what were we looking at? Well, there was a Stormont election in 2003. That was a very significant moment. That was the point at which the um, the DUP and Sinn Féin were the biggest parties, the SDLP and the Austrian Unionists who had been f- at, really at the forefront of the Good Friday um, Agreement talks, which had been in government after that agreement. They were now in reverse. They were falling um, at the polls. The main news this lunchtime, over half of the 108 Assembly seats have been declared in the election, with the DUP still maintaining its lead on the second day of counting. Sinn Féin continued to make gains against the SDLP. After 20 and there was a sense that um, there was a move by voters towards what were seen as the extreme parties. There was a diminishing chance, it seemed, of getting devolved government back at Stormont. And then in 2004, the year after that election, there was a review of the Good Friday Agreement. The, the DUP and Sinn Féin, extraordinarily, really, in hindsight, came incredibly close to a deal. That deal fell apart. And so therefore, there was a sense of um, gloom at the end of 2004. And then in late 2004, we're a week before Christmas and we go to Polglass on the outskirts of West Belfast and, and take us from there. It's a Sunday night. It's just before Christmas. It's the 19th of December and a Northern Bank employee, one, one of the major banks in Northern Ireland, one, one of their employees, Chris Ward, is at home with his family, with several of his family members and his parents in West Belfast. They're watching football and a knock comes to the door and a man says, all right, Chris, I'm here to talk to you about Celtic. This wasn't particularly unusual because um, Chris Ward was involved in a Celtic supporters club. He was used to people coming to the door and asking for tickets or for other things which were linked to that club. And then he realised there was a second man standing in the shadows. They got into the house. They made clear to him that this was to do with his work at the bank. And if he cooperated and if his family cooperated with what they were being asked to do, they would be all right. And if they didn't, they'd be killed. About 20 miles away in Lochan Island in County Down, something similar had been unfolding. A second bank employee, someone who was a manager in the bank called Kevin McMullen, was at home with his wife, Karen, and two men dressed as police officers knocked their door. They pretended to the McMullins that they were there to bring bad news about a dreadful road accident that was quite distressing for them, but quickly they overpowered the couple at gunpoint. They really um, rapidly instilled fear into the McMullins. They told Kevin that they would leave his wife in a state which was beyond repair if he didn't do what he was told to do. She was then taken away. They were separated. She was brought to a house where she's held hostage and they were given a message or she, she rather was given a message in this house that there was a bed that she could lie down on and sleep. 
She was too afraid to sleep. She was worried somebody might sexually assault her. And really, this is the most disturbing aspect of this entire story, because it's not just a story about an awful lot of money being stolen and about high politics. It's a story about human beings. And Karen McMullen was the person who was most deeply traumatized by what happened to her. She's never spoken about that to journalists, but she did speak about it in court. And in her testimony there, she said that she heard plastic rustling at one point. She heard zips. She thought this was a body bag. She thought her life was over. And it was clear from her testimony in court that that made a a very scarring impression upon her psychologically. Chris Ward was then driven to the McMullen's house. Both of them were told that they were going to have to rob their bank the following day if they ever wanted to see their families again. Nowadays, we would know this as a, a tiger kidnapping where you you kidnap the the families of bank employees and you you force them to effectively bring bring the money what happened the following day they were told that they were to go to work as normal they were to act normally they weren't to do anything to try to raise the alarm and then just after 6 p.m. on the following day we're getting close to 24 hours after they have been taken hostage really if you like they are told on mobile phones that they've been given by their attackers that they are to deliver 1 million pounds to robbers in a hold hall so they are to get this money out of the bank's vaults in the center of Belfast this is right behind beside Belfast City Hall. Um, it's, it's in the run-up to Christmas. The streets are busy with Christmas shopping, etc. So Kevin McMullen sends the other staff home early. He's a manager. He's able to do that. They then go down to the vault. They get the cash. They stuff it into this sports bag. Chris Ward then walks out the door without anyone searching his bag and delivers it to a man at a bus stop. They have a brief conversation. It all might look quite natural to somebody who is passing them in the street, but the bag goes off with the man who he has met. This is very significant because this is a test run. It's showing to the people who are conducting the robbery that they still haven't been rumbled. At this point, the test run has been successful. So we move on to the main event. How does that play out? Well, Kevin McMullen then tells the security control room that a waste uh, lorry is coming to take rubbish from the cash centre. He goes down then with Chris Ward and these two men go to the vaults. They go back up and forth between the vaults and the loading bay, bringing wheeled wire cages with millions of pounds stuffed inside them. This is something which is pretty nerve wracking for these two individuals. They know that there is lots of CCTV cameras throughout. And so they try to make this look as normal and as believable as possible. I've seen that CCTV footage. It's pretty extraordinary because they do look like two men who are just going about their jobs. And actually, this is the biggest bank robbery in the history of Britain or in the history of Ireland. The doors of the loading bay are then opened. Um, a gang who are driving a large van loaded up. There are several gang members. They're wearing wigs. They're disguised. And then pretty boldly, they say to the two people who are conducting the robbery really for them that they're coming back for a second run. They say you've got 15 minutes to fill as many cages as possible with 20-point notes. 
And one of these individuals gives Chris Ward some black agricultural cling film, the, the sort of stuff that wraps big bales of silage. And that is to go round these cages to really partially disguise what's inside them. It's really daring this. Inside these cages, in open sight, if somebody had even looked over the top of this cling film, there are openly banknotes being taken out under the noses of the staff who are there to secure the bank. How much money did they steal in total? It was £26.5 million. Pounds. It wasn't all in sterling, but that was the sterling value of it. About £16.5 million of that was in new bank notes. Those were the notes which the bank had literally just got printed. They had never gone out. They had never circulated in the Northern Ireland economy. All of those notes were ultimately withdrawn from circulation. That led the then police chief constable, Sir Hugh Ord, in Northern Ireland to say that this was the largest theft of waste paper in the history of Northern Ireland. Fjord was a was a good PR person. Um, he was he was very good with the media, and that that was a that was a great line. But it wasn't entirely true. A lot of this money did get out. It was possible to offload it. It was clever to reprint the money. It was something which the robbers may not necessarily have anticipated. But it's likely that at least some of that was laundered before that happened. And so, therefore, it's never been entirely clear how much of this actually made its way um, out into the economy. Did members of the public see anything at all on on that night? Yes, there was a report by a couple who saw these people in wigs, the people who were in the van, the people who were the gang taking this away. And they reported this to a traffic warden just around the corner. The traffic warden phoned the police. And the police got there, I think, something like a minute, just about 60 seconds after the gang had left. That's how close it was. So, Sam, after the robbery, what happens with the Ward and McMullen families and in particular Karen McMullen? So while the robbery is still taking place, the robbers are communicating by phone. And so there is a message which gets out that things are going well. And at this point, Karen McMullen is moved a second time. She's taken to Drumkira Forest. It's isolated, it's dark, it's very cold. This is the middle of winter, just before Christmas. And for hours, Karen McMullen has been convinced that her death is looming. At this point, she thinks it's imminent. She said in court that, um, I was waiting for the bullet in the back of my head. I asked him to give my body back to my family. And actually, at this point, they don't kill her. They free her. But she's in the middle of a freezing forest. She is disoriented. She's incredibly distressed. And she eventually finds a house, an isolated house. She raises the alarm there. There is a 999 call to the police. And gradually, through transcripts of what the um, people who took those calls said, we are able to see how the police started to piece together what was going on. They, by this stage, had had a second call from Chris Ward's house. He had been told by the people who captured him that once he got home, he was to ring and raise the alarm at 11 p.m. He did that. He was on the phone with the call handler for about 30 minutes. There is evident shock from the call handler as he says to her, I think we've just stolen about £30 million from the Northern Bank. And gradually the police start to work out that this is a massive crime. How big is the investigation and how many countries does it span? 
This is a massive investigation. The credibility of the police service of Northern Ireland, which at this point is really still in its infancy, which is facing criticism, particularly from unionists, particularly from former officers of the RUC who had left under the patent reforms, is really at stake here. It wasn't a botched police investigation, and I want to nail that quite clearly at the start. It's a very professional police investigation. Experienced detectives are working round the clock to recover the money and apprehend uh, those responsible for taking it. And so they threw, um, it seems, everything that they have at this investigation. Scores of officers are involved in this. The police service of Northern Ireland's chief constable is personally involved in this. He's briefing the prime minister. He's briefing the Taoiseach about this. And they are liaising with um, foreign intelligence services, with um, foreign police forces, they are doing everything they can to shut down either the laundering of this money out of Northern Ireland or the movement of this um, money physically throughout the island of Ireland. There's only really one set of suspects, though, aren't there? There are really immediately the IRA are in the frame. In some ways, you could say that that's a compliment to the IRA. They were basically one of the very few gangs and in the views of some people within the uh, police and within the wider world of, of uh, Northern Irish security, they were basically the only people who had the level of sophistication, the level of discipline, the level of cleanup after their operations to be able to do what happened here. There are on record a number of gangs in Northern Ireland who could carry out uh, an attack of this nature. But clearly, as I said before, uh, in terms of Northern Ireland, you have to take it as, as read. There are a number of paramilitary groups who clearly have the expertise, the numbers and the ability to carry this out. And that remains a, a part of our line of inquiry. But there was also a second reason why the IRA really were being fingered for this from the outset. This was something which had a quasi-military aspect to it. It was something where the hostages said that those holding them were incredibly disciplined. They were answering to each other in what seemed to be a chain of command. They were communicating very efficiently. They were obviously people who had done this before, people who had access to guns, people who were willing to use that and be entirely ruthless, but were not indiscriminately going around shooting people and attacking them where they felt that didn't serve their purposes. What arrests were made subsequently? There were a lot of arrests. There were a lot of arrests um, in the South, particularly. The guards were heavily involved in these. There, were, there was money seized in some of these arrests. Some of these people had links to Sinn Féin or to the wider Republican movement. Some of them also were, were quite eye-catching, almost ludicrous in some ways. There was a car stopped in Dublin where the individual in that car had £75,000 of sterling banknotes in a dad's soapbox. There were two Sinn Féin members who were who were lifted in Cork. There were then there were people who were who were um, neighbouring a man who was conducting some sort of bonfire, um, and actually they came to realise that he was burning banknotes because the banknotes were floating up in the air. Some of them were half burnt and they were landing on their property. And they then realised these were Northern banknotes. And so when the guards went to his property, they not only found what he was doing in relation to the banknotes, but they found 220 Kalashnikov bullets at his house. There was an element here that was clearly linking Northern Bank cash and Northern Bank notes, which were trying to be destroyed, and heavy, heavy weaponry. 
This was not something which was a small-scale operation or something which was being done by people who were amateurs in this regard, even though that aspect of it had an amateurish feel to it in terms of burning the banknotes. And then there was this very significant element where Ted Cunningham, a Cork financier, was found with £2.4 million of sterling notes in his home. And he was ultimately jailed in relation to money laundering. He was the only person who in any way was linked to this crime who was put into jail. But he was not jailed for the robbery. Nobody has been jailed for the robbery. He was then in a position where his conviction was overturned. He had been convicted in relation to laundering money, uh, which the guard said had come from this crime. And then at the second trial, where he was put on trial on these charges, he admitted to money laundering. He did then go to jail. But now he says that he's innocent of all those charges. He says that he confessed under pressure. And he says that he got that money from business associates in Bulgaria. In the middle of this of this investigation, there was a rather bizarre discovery too, Sam. Yes, there was £50,000 of Northern Bank notes, new Northern Bank notes, traceable Northern Bank notes, notes that obviously had come from this robbery, which were found in the police sports club in South Belfast at New Forge. Now, that was an act of audacity, but it was also quite a telling act because it seemed to be a message to the police from Republicans. It was a message that they had infiltrated, where they socialised, and it was also a message that they were that they were sending um, about what they could do and what they were willing to do. What happened with Chris Ward, the bank official whose family was originally kidnapped? Well, this was another really sensational and dramatic aspect of this story, um, he 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 then became the only person and still is the only person who actually went on trial for the robbery. He was the person who had done a televised interview as the victim of the robbery, as the person who was forced to go along with this and whose family had suffered as a result of this. Um, but actually, here he was being arrested by the police, being charged, being told you were the person who was at the heart of this. You were you were actually not a victim. You were an accomplice. You were in on this from the inside. That trial then collapsed in equally spectacular fashion. There was a central claim of the prosecution that he had changed a rota, um, which had put him on that night. And it then emerged at the, trial, at the trial that he had not changed that rota. The prosecution withdrew their case against him. That then led to really very, very serious accusations from his solicitor that he had been charged due to prejudice by the police and um, due to prejudice really about him as someone who, coming from West Belfast, coming from a Sinn Féin heartland, was somebody who was predisposed almost to carrying out a crime of this nature. He said this was outrageous. That was um, something which Hjord, the um, former chief constable of the police service of uh, Northern Ireland, said was not the case. He was very defensive of what the police had done here. But the long and the short of this was that Chris Ward went from being the victim of this to being somebody who was charged with this to being somebody who was cleared of this. Did the sum of money taken here ultimately become the IRA pension fund or could they actually use it? 
Well, that is something which to this day many people believe. That was something which um, people in the police suggested at the time, people in the government suggested at the time. And yet, actually, when I've spoken to people who are former IRA members, not only do they say that they've never seen any of this money, but they say that they don't know anybody who has ever seen anything approaching a pension. I think that there is a significant question here for Sinn Féin, which is awkward for them, which they don't like addressing, which when I made a film about this for the BBC last year and we approached Sinn Féin, they didn't want to cooperate in any way. They wouldn't be interviewed. They wouldn't answer written questions about this. But there are very fair questions here for Sinn Féin. At this time, the message from Sinn Féin was that the IRA was going away. They were going out of business. They didn't need money in the way that on their terms, they needed money in the past. They weren't buying weapons. They weren't um, having to pay their volunteers as had been the case in the past. They were morphing into an entirely legitimate political party, as they said. And so therefore, if they didn't need the money for the IRA, the only other part of the Republican movement was Sinn Féin. There was reference to this in um, some of the diplomatic cables from the American government, which were leaked by WikiLeaks several years ago, where some um, senior figures in the Garda spoke on an unattributable basis to American diplomats around this time and said they believed that money from the Northern Bank was leaking into Sinn Féin. Money from other criminal enterprises from the IRA was leaking into the political side of the movement. Even though Sinn Féin haven't answered my questions about that, I'm sure they would say that's outrageous, that's wrong, that's not the case. But I think that if you look at this on the and, and really use the logic of Sinn Féin around this, it's very difficult for them to explain where that money went. Of course, they say it simply wasn't stolen by the IRA, but I don't think that's very credible. And we started off talking about the political situation at the time in Northern Ireland. What impact did the robbery ultimately have on the peace process? Well, in the days after this and in the weeks after this, there was a sense of despondency. There was a sense within the British and Irish governments and among the parties in Northern Ireland and among a lot of the public in Northern Ireland that really this was it. It was all over. Um, the IRA weren't serious about giving up criminality. The two parties who had been on the cusp of going into government together, the DUP and Sinn Féin, were never going to govern together now. And yet, within a matter of weeks, there had really been a remarkable transformation. The IRA suddenly was moving towards going out of business. Jerry Adams was making clear that that was going to happen and he endorsed that. We also had the murder of Robert McCartney in Belfast, which heavily put um, pressure on the IRA to move in that direction. And there was a very significant element of, of really pressure coming here from um, North America. Jerry Adams went to the annual St. Patrick's Day festivities in Washington, and he got a very unpleasant message, a very blunt message from Irish America. People who previously had been very sympathetic and very supportive of what he was telling Telling them suddenly didn't want to meet him. Northern bank robbery, which has been blamed without one shred of evidence on Republicans. The, the dreadful killing of Robert McCartney, which we have repudiated without any equivocation whatsoever, which I think, because it did involve some Republicans, disgraces the good name of Republicanism. And suddenly they were telling him, actually, Jerry, 
this is it. We don't want this anymore. You need to move on. We can't defend this. It's not right. It's time to get down to politics and forget about this stuff. And he came back from there. And within days, the the IRA was moving in a very different direction. And so, ironically, something which looked like it might destroy the peace process actually, in hindsight, sped it up. Is the investigation into the Northern Bank robbery still open, technically? It technically is still open in that generally police investigations are never closed unless they're solved, Um, certainly not for many, many decades. But there doesn't seem to be much interest or much um, much, uh, police resources into um, that at this point. One of my colleagues at the Belfast Telegraph, Amy Cochran, um, contacted the police last year and asked them what they were doing around this. And they admitted to her that they don't have any detectives actively looking into this. And that's quite remarkable if you think about this. It was the biggest bank robbery in British or Irish history at the time. And it was an awful lot of money. Some of it, yes, was got. Some of it was not got. And yet there is a sense here um, that this is a crime that is too difficult. It's too sensitive. It has links to people who are too powerful. A lot of people, I think, just don't want this ever really, truly to be solved. My thanks to Sam McBride for joining me today. I'm Fionn Sheen, and today's episode was produced by Tabitha Monaghan, researched by Mark Donlan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, sound designed by John Smith. Clips from ITN, Channel 4 News, Associated Press and RTE Archives with one of the most lucrative heists ever. If you like the Indo Daily, don't forget to rate, follow and leave us a review.